we will start the sermon for this morning. So, as so said, my name's Ian. Um, if I've not met you before, together, Sophie and I, we lead this um, site of Vineyard Church. And if you're new here this morning, then we are so excited that you're here. Thank you for coming and joining us on our second week as a, as a site in this city. Um, if you were here last week, then thanks for coming back. It's good to see you again. You weren't put off by the chaos of a, of a new site. Um, it's great to have you here. And I don't know about you. I don't know what your week's been like. We have had a tough week, by all means. I think, you know what? We came away from last Sunday absolutely buzzing by what God was doing through this community. You know, it's been building and building to the launch. And then suddenly we got here and we're like, here we are. And this room was full and the kids had an amazing time. And we just came away and we're like, that was great. And then I think in any situation where you start something new, step out in faith, you do something like that, there's always going to be a spiritual backlash, isn't there? And I think this week we have just felt it, whether it's the van that we use for setup breaking down and when I was having to borrow one this morning, or whether it's just other things that have gotten away at home or at work or whatever, we've just felt it. So please be praying, uh, not just for us, but for everybody that's involved in this site, and I'm sure over at Central as well. Um, the enemy would love to stop what we're doing, but... What encouragement that is, you know. It's hard, but it's a sign that we're onto something good and that the Lord is doing something through us. So I'm encouraged. Anyway, so last week, James kicked off a new series called Grace-Filled Community, and he explained that being a grace-filled community isn't just a nice idea. It's something that we believe God has called us to be as a church. It's one of our key values. And James taught us that grace-filled people create grace-filled communities. And he challenged us to see people the way that Jesus sees them, seeing the masterpiece rather than the mud. Well, this morning, as we continue this series, we're going to explore that a little bit more. Um, and we, I want to explore what it looks like to treat people the way that Jesus would treat them. This is where the community side of Gracefield community kicks in. It's one thing to individually learn to see people as Jesus sees them, but I think the next step is to actually put that into practice in the context of community. And let's be honest, we can be honest here, um, being in community can be hard work, can't it? I think community life can be very complicated. Uh, there are huge pros to being in community, but it can come at a cost. And that's some of the stuff that I want to unpack today. I'd say one of the most beautiful things about the church is that we get to do it together. But one of the hardest things about the church is that we have to do it together. I think it's a real, it's a challenge. The church is a family. And just the same as the families that we've been born into, that means that we don't get to choose who we do it with. It'd be lovely if we could pick and choose everybody, but the reality of the church is that we don't get to choose who comes along on a Sunday or that who's part of our, our small group or who we interact with week to week. And the truth is that we're all, from, we're all different, aren't we? We're all from different backgrounds. We all have our flaws. We've all got our stuff that we bring into this community. And we won't always get along with everyone all of the time. But God has called his church his people, to be a real, authentic community. That's what he's called us to be. And that's what we're looking at today. What does it mean for this community to be authentic and real with one another? What does that look like in practice? Well, a good place to look for advice about doing church and church life is in Paul's letters uh, to the early church in the New Testament. In his letters to the Colossian church, Paul speaks directly to a community of believers, and he offers them advice about how they should act with one another. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn to Colossians 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, it should appear behind me on this screen. Um, 
But before we dive into, we're going to be looking at Colossians 3. Before we dive into that, I'd just love to pray. Lord God, you have called us to be a grace-filled community. And I thank you that you've gathered us together. And Lord, as, as, I just, as we just begin to look at this text this morning, would you just unpack it with us? Would your spirit just be in these words? And as we, as we read your word this morning, would it, would it be sown into our hearts that we might bear fruit and that this community would be so full of your grace that we would act in the way that Jesus would act with each other? Amen. Okay, so let's take a look at Colossians 3. Um, I'm just going to read it now. I'm reading it in the NIV translation. Paul says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge in the image of the, its creator. Here, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has any grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And, all these virtu- and above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I'm just going to stop there. I know the passage continues, but we're just going to stop at verse 14. Paul clearly has a lot to say to the Colossians about how to treat one another. And this morning I'd like to focus primarily on verses 12 to 14, as there are three key principles that I'd like to draw out from these verses for us to consider. So let's start in verse 12. Paul's got some fashion advice for us. don't know if you noticed that. Um, I think last week Soph shared... um, I might say overshared, but shared that she bought a bobble hat and some new wellies in preparation for the fireworks coming up. Um, she's so prepared. I'll probably get to bonfire night and be like, do I have any gloves? And so be like, no, you didn't order any. Do I have a hat? No. So I'll just be there in my shorts and flip-flops, like <laughs> quite a lot of the people that seem to live around here. Um, so... This week, anyway, you'll be pleased to hear that those things arrived, and then within a few minutes of Sophie unpacking them, she just came running into the room wearing everything she'd bought. I'm sure she's not the only person that does that, that when the clothes arrive, you just want to wear them all. You know, your old clothes are just instantly relegated to the back of the wardrobe. I've got new clothes now. I don't need to wear anything else. I'm going to wear these every single day until it's socially unacceptable to wear them anymore. We were joking that Sophie was like, you know, most people go to the wardrobe to get, your, get their clothes. Ian, you just look at the floor and decide what you're going to wear today. Pick them up, give them a sniff, and see if they're good to go another day. That's usually the test, um, sadly. I think these were new today. This is clean. Yes. 
because I'm preaching. Um, <laughs> Got to look good. Anyway, don't know what I'm getting onto with that. Um, <laughs> there is a point somewhere. Um, when Paul says, clothe yourselves, he gives us a command which requires us to be intentional. As adults, I'm sure all of us here probably choose what we're going to wear each day. We have that choice. And the same applies when it comes to choosing how we're going to dress ourselves spiritually. But did you notice that in that passage, before Paul tells us what we must put on, he actually tells us what we must take off. As you can see, verse 12 begins, therefore. So Paul's referring back to something he said in the preceding verses. In the opening verses of Colossians 3, Paul reminds us that as we have a new life as believers and how when we choose to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our old life, the way we used to live, is put to death and we begin a new life in Christ. The whole essence of the gospel is that through Jesus, we have new life. The former things have gone and the new has come. We are made new in Christ. And as we begin to walk out in this new life that Christ gives us, Paul instructs us to put to death old habits, sexual, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and rid ourselves of destructive behaviors such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. In verse 7, he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of such things. Like old clothes that don't fit us anymore, Paul insists that we take them off and put them down. And in their place, he offers us a new wardrobe. He invites us to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul's instruction was to take off the old clothes and put on the new. But how do you clothe yourselves in compassion or in kindness? You know, I go to my wardrobe and I don't see compassion just hanging up in the wardrobe to put on. Um, so how exactly do we do that? I think the answer is ultimately through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. In Ezekiel 36, verse 27, this is in the message, message version of the Bible, God says through the prophet, I will put my spirit in you and make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. God will put his spirit within us. And in John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. So Jesus promises that when, when he died, when he ascended to heaven, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to remind us of what he taught and to help us to live the way that he calls us to. Jesus assures us that if we follow him, the Holy Spirit will dwell within us and guide us. It's through the Holy Spirit that we can throw off the old clothes and clothe ourselves in the new. It's not something that we can do just through our own willpower. If it was, then we wouldn't get very far before we just give up. I believe that in order to become more like Jesus, we need to invite the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to teach us, and to guide us. And as we do that, we'll begin to bear fruit. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul teaches us uh, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I don't think it's coincidence that many of the fruits of the Spirit that he lists in Galatians are the very same attributes that he calls us to clothe ourselves in. It's through the Holy Spirit that we are transformed and begin to bear fruit. It's in the presence of God, through the Holy Spirit, that's what makes us different as a community. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, some of you will recognize specific behaviors that have changed in you in the time since you've come to know Jesus. Thoughts, behaviors, attitudes, the things that you say. I can see that in my own life in the time that I've spent following Jesus. He changes us. And there's a guy called Colin who's part of our community. He's actually um, tends to go more to our central site. And he shared his testimony in a video that the church shared on their 10th birthday. And in it, he talked about how much he had changed since he'd come to know Jesus. He said that whereas he used to be getting into fights and just didn't care about people, um, since he'd met Jesus, his attitude had completely changed. He said he now had compassion for people and cares for people so much more than he did. And I love that. I love just seeing that in people, the way that their lives are transformed. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit brings about a transformation within us. And we can't be transformed without the work of the Holy Spirit. So in order to clothe ourselves in compassion, kindness, and so on, we need to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives and learn to walk in step with the Spirit. And if you know that that's something that, that you want to press into, that you, that you need to grow in, then maybe I'd love to encourage you, maybe you just, over the course of this week, make it a goal to start your day with a simple prayer of, Holy Spirit, would you fill me again today? Would you teach me your ways and would you guide my steps? Amen. Just start your day as you wake up with that prayer, maybe each day, and see if if some of those fruits of the Spirit just begin to spring up within you. As we grow in this, we can become more like Jesus. We can demonstrate those traits that Paul recommends that we do. And we can learn to treat people the way that Jesus would treat them. So that's the first principle that I think we pick up from Paul. Clothe yourselves. Put on the new wardrobe that God's offering. So let's take a look at the second principle in verse 13. Paul says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I feel like in this verse, Paul is saying... Yep, I know, I get it. People will annoy you, people are going to frustrate you, people are going to let you down, and people are going to hurt you. Those times will inevitably come. But there is a right way to respond. I feel like that's what Paul's saying. As I said at the start, we don't get to choose who we do family life with. We don't get to choose who's a part of this family. And we won't necessarily get on with everybody in this community all of the time. There will unfortunately be moments when we let each other down and when we hurt one another. And we're not making any promises in this church that those things won't happen. But what makes the, different, what makes the church different from any other group, any other community, should hopefully be the way that we choose to respond to each other in those moments. The advice Paul gives is not to cut them out of your life and just carry on as normal. The advice is not to tell everyone in the church that someone messed up and let you down. No, we're called to a higher standard than that. And I just want to make an aside at this point. In this, I'm mainly talking about the things that crop up naturally when people with different personalities and different strengths and different ways of doing things are doing life alongside each other in the church family. My focus today is more on the day-to-day issues that may occur within this community. Some of us here may have had traumatic and maybe um, painful experiences that have been caused by people in the church, whether it's in this one or another. And I don't mean to play play down the severity of those things. And I don't want to brush them off as something that we can just forgive and forget. 
But whilst the principles of forgiveness still apply in those situations, the process of forgiving someone can be harder to deal with depending on the circumstances. You know, we recognize that. And if you're going through something severe at the moment, uh, we have people and we have programs in this church that we would love to connect you with. Um, so if, you, if there's something going on, you, if you're in a small group, then we'd encourage you to speak to your small group leader. If you want to speak to Soph and I, then feel free to grab us. But there are people in this church and things that we have, processes, to help you deal with some of those bigger things. But when it comes to the day-to-day, I believe that we are called to a posture of forgiveness and forbearance. That's what Paul is telling us. In Matthew's Gospel, we see Peter asking Jesus about forgiveness. He comes to Jesus and he's, he's like, how many times must I forgive someone who has wronged me? And Pete, what Peter's getting at is he's like, I want to know from Jesus, is there a point when someone crosses the line and at which point I don't need to forgive them anymore? I just block them out of my life? Is there a point that we get to? And the teachers of the day would have said that if someone sinned against you seven times, that's enough. You don't need to forgive them anymore. But Jesus doesn't endorse that principle. Jesus says it's not seven times, it's actually 77 times. In fact, some translations even suggest that Jesus is saying 70 times seven times. My maths is like pretty good, I'd say. Always been pretty good on the numbers on countdown. And um, so that's four, 490 times he says that we should forgive. Peter must have been like, what? They say seven and you're saying 490 times. Whichever translation you choose to follow, the point Jesus is making is that number is so high that you just wouldn't bother keeping a record. Jesus isn't suggesting that you sit there with your spreadsheet and you're like, oh, I've forgiven you once, mark it off, forgiven you twice. Okay, that's 63 times, you've got 14 to go, but you're getting close to the edge. He's not saying that. He's not not suggesting that we do that. No, Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is something that we should continue to do without keeping a record of the wrong that's done to us. It's not about the number of times we've been hurt. It's about the posture of our heart. Martin Luther King said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, it is a permanent attitude. Forgiveness is an attitude that we have to develop and cultivate in our lives. And the best way we can develop that attitude is by remembering how much we've been forgiven ourselves. Last week, James referenced how easy it can be when you've been a Christian for a while to forget where you've come from. It can be easy to forget your own brokenness sometimes. And when we acknowledge the debt that Jesus paid for us, the lengths that he went to to forgive us and to reconcile us to the Father, that unlocks the power to forgive, to forgive others. Um, Tim Keller says this, he says, I love this quote, the more you rejoice in your own forgiveness, the quicker you will be to forgive, forgive others. The more you rejoice in your own forgiveness, the quicker you will be to forgive others. So can I ask you, how are you doing with this? Is this something that you need to grow in, learning to forgive others? Perhaps a good place to start this week would just be reflecting on how much you've been forgiven by God, the simple truth of the gospel. A grace-filled community is a people who forgive because they know that they've been forgiven. I'll say that again. A grace-filled community is filled with people who forgive because they know they've been forgiven. All of this is a challenge. I'm not playing that down. All of this is a challenge and all of this is a choice. And none of this will necessarily come easy. But real, authentic, grace-filled community takes work. 
And I believe that to reap the benefits of being in community, you have to opt in. I've been in church for a while now. I came to faith when I was 18, and I've been, um, I'm a bit older than that now, 25. Um, <laughs> actually 31, but thanks for you guys that didn't laugh. Um, and I've observed that there are different levels that people can choose to engage in when it comes to getting involved in community. And I think there's a dangerous place that some people get caught where they're coming along, but they're not quite willing to let their guard down and be known. I think it's possible to be surrounded by people, yet totally disconnected. It can be tempting to come to church, put on a facade, pre present this version of yourself that you want others to see and not be willing to be authentic. I appreciate that that's hard to do, that it comes at the cost of being vulnerable, but if we're going to be an authentic, grace-filled community, then we need each and every person to choose to opt in. That's how we become an authentic community. And it's not that we're saying, you know, bear your soul to everyone and everyone else is just going to be a closed book. Hopefully in a community like that, everyone is being vulnerable and everyone respects that people are being that way. If that, if that position is something that you resonate with at the moment, it might be within this community that you're like, you know what, I'm here, but I'm not connected. I'm present, but people just don't know me then I'd really encourage you to lean in. Maybe it's, if you're not in a small group, I'd love to encourage you to get into a small group. That is an incredible place to practice that, but it's not the only place. We encourage people to join a team. Sophie um, did that plug. We need people to fill the teams. That is an amazing way, not just to serve this church, but to get to know people on a Sunday or through the week. C.S. Lewis said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. To love at all is to be vulnerable. And this leads me on to the third principle from Paul. Paul gives us the final piece of the puzzle in verse 14. He says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We're called to love one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes love as being the greatest attribute we can display. He mentions love throughout his letter to the Colossians, and in this passage, he describes love as the number one virtue that we should put on. At its very core... Love is about sacrifice. That's what I believe. Love is about sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes love as not self-seeking, but honoring others. In order to clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness, and in order to totally forgive others, ultimately, we have to learn to love them. And that's about putting other people's needs before our own. It's about preferring others above ourselves. And just as we forgive because we've been forgiven, so we love because God loved us first. In John 13, uh, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's how the world knows that we are his disciples. The way that we love speaks volumes to those around us. And I experienced this for the first time when I stepped foot in church. As I said, I came to faith when I was 18, 12 or 13 years ago, and it was in a vineyard church in Taunton, where I'm from. And I was struck by how people genuinely cared about each other. The community just oozed love. That's what I saw. When someone asked me how I was doing, they genuinely wanted to know. 
people took me under their wing and invited me back food. You know what? I was new to faith, new to church life. And my family never went to church before. But most Sundays would go by and I would rarely not have somewhere to go back for lunch and just see family life done. The number of people that invited me back to dinner was incredible. That's where I saw love happen. People went out of their way to help me. I didn't feel judged about my background or the mistakes I made. My life wasn't sorted. I was still doing all sorts. But people just accepted me. It was a community that taught me how important it was to share everything that was going on beneath the surface. They taught me that it was absolutely fine to cry. I probably spent the first year or two of my faith, most weeks, either on a Sunday or during the week, small group, wherever, either on my knees or bawling my eyes out. Because there was so much hurt, there was so much pain, there was such an overwhelming realization about what God was doing and who he was, what grace was about, how much I'd been forgiven, the lengths he went to to save me. I learned those things in that community. So coming into a community like that, that loved Jesus and loved one another, was like anything I'd ever experienced. The tangible, authentic love of God is infectious and irresistible. And when it's seen and experienced within a community, people are drawn to it. It's magnetic. As we've said many times over the last few months, we exist for those yet to come. And one of the greatest invitations to people who don't know Jesus is to demonstrate his love through the way we treat each other. When we're willing to embrace community, when we grow in the fruits of the Spirit and clothe ourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, when we learn to bear with one another and forgive one another, and when we learn to love each other, when we do these things, we create an environment in which people can be known and belong, where people can be vulnerable, and ultimately where lives can be transformed. That's the kind of grace-filled community that demonstrates Jesus' love. That's the kind of community that I'm excited to be a part of, and I believe that's the kind of community that God's calling us to be. So why don't you stand?